Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Pannell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host. Beringer Ingelheim knows that every veterinary professional in practice has a wide variety of needs. That's why our equine veterinary technical solutions team, our VETS team, is here to provide education, product, and veterinary expertise, exceptional customer care, and regulatory stewardships. Our mission is to lead our veterinary community in technical knowledge and build a long-lasting relationship with our customers. To get in contact with one of our team members, please call us at 888-637-4251. Hi, I'm Mike Connell, and welcome to the AEP Practice Life podcast brought to you by Beringer Engelheim. we got a really interesting and I think very timely subject we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about boundaries in equine practice. I posted on the AEP Facebook members page hey, I want to talk about this. And the responses were amazing. And a lot of what we're going to discuss is based on the feedback or the questions that members have asked. But before we get into that, let's introduce who will be joining us tonight and a lot of newcomers. I'm really excited to meet some new people. So first of all, we're going to start with Dr. Sarah Miller. Hey, Sarah, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) Then we also have Dr. Julie Setledge. Did I pronounce your last name right, Julie? You sure did, Mike. Excellent. Yeah. So thanks for, for having me tonight. Welcome. And returning once again is Dr. Marissa Markey. Hey, Marissa. Hi. Thanks for having me. Let's have you tell a little bit about what you do. So Sarah, tell us a bit about you and your practice. Our practice is a mixed animal practice. We do a lot of podiatry work. My husband's a certified barrier. So that's a huge part of our business and where we started. But I've been a mixed animal vet for a long time. So we'll see horses probably like 75%, but we'll see all the local cattle, goats, sheep, few barn cats and dogs mixed in there. We just see a little bit of everything. We live in a really rural community. And I was going to ask, where do you live and and how many vets are in your practice? So it's just me. Okay, great. My husband and I own the practice together and it's primarily mobile. And we are south of Tulsa, probably about like 30, 45 minutes south of the Tulsa area. So that's where we do a lot of our work. But we are in a tiny little town called Hitchda. So we get a lot of that small town practice feel. Excellent. And Julie, tell us about yourself. I actually work for Boeing Wrangleheim. So I entered into industry uh, on the equine side just over two and a half years ago. And before that, I was in academic practice. So uh, a little bit different from the small middle of nowhere practice, but uh, still struggle with boundaries every now and again. Don't we all? And Marissa, finally, tell us about yourself. I'm an equine practitioner in Ontario and Canada, and I work for a large equine practice uh, with multiple vets and a big team. Okay, so we've got a good range, good range of people. So that's excellent. So the first question is, and I think just so we sort of can define what we're talking about, and Julie, let's start with you. And that is, what is a boundary? And, and I guess the follow-up to that is, how do we know when we need a boundary? Yeah, and I think that's a, a really good place to start. You know, so for me, a boundary is a delineation between who I am and I want and who other people are and what they want. <laughs> because sometimes 
what they want is going to interfere with what my needs and wants are. So that's, that's what that space or that line in between me and someone else is that boundary. And certainly the way I feel or I know that I need a boundary is when I am finding myself angry, frustrated, disappointed in that other person or situation, potentially more than one. Once maybe a boundary has not been crossed, but if it's happening over and over and over again, then those uh, uncomfortable uh, feelings in myself are, are strong signals to me that I need to see what boundary I need to either reestablish or establish. Excellent. How about yourself, Marissa? I think Julie said that beautifully. And I actually, I heard that in a podcast the other day, the idea of if we are feeling frustration or anxiety or anger, that is the sign that a boundary has been crossed. That was a bit of a wake up moment for me and saying, yeah, you know what, when you feel those emotions, especially in the workspace, getting really curious about yourself, about where that's coming from and how you can reestablish or establish some sort of boundary in that position to prevent those negative emotions. What's your sense of this, Sarah? So, and I really liked those responses because I don't really think I thought about it that way before. Usually boundaries for me are the personal to the work. And I think sometimes that's because with our practice being so small, as far as staff goes, like there's not a whole lot of boundary because it's, it's just a little, a little practice. But a lot of times it's the cutoff between the personal and the professional. That's where we try to set those boundaries at, mostly between clients. Yeah, I just want to go back to what you started with, Julie, just uh, because, you know, your description of that overlap. And I guess that overlap would change with time. And I always think of boundaries and one of, you know, I remember talking with our veterinarians about this recently, just, you know, having check-in meetings is we have vets that are very young and enthusiastic and they really want to try hard and they almost have no boundaries. And then I would say it's almost like the dripping of water just over time wears away when it touches. And then the boundaries start to really, the gap is much narrower. So I think over time, would you say that it's, it's fair to say that boundaries will shift? Yeah, I 100% agree. And I, I think not only just over the course of our career, as we get comfortable in practice or, or it's just not as new and shiny and awesome as it was when we first graduated, but then also other things enter into our lives, be it spouses, children, hobbies that we didn't know we were even passionate about. And so we get these conflicting requests of our time and, and we only have, that's like the most precious resource, right? And so we can't just keep adding things to our life and expect the day to get longer. And then all of a sudden we get these pressures internal. I, I want to do that instead of that. And if that starts really making me angry, annoyed, disappointed, anxious, then that's when I need to sit down and figure out one, my priorities and two, how am I going to set these boundaries and communicate those boundaries so that I can actually thrive instead of being seated inside those um, uncomfortable emotions. I guess as, as we're going along this discussion, I think it would be two main audiences for this is the, the newer vet uh, who is enthusiastic and really wants to sort of prove their mettle. But it's almost like you've got to, it's probably easier to set the boundaries early in your career because then you sort of have met expectations or you've set expectations for everybody. But then I think the biggest challenge, and we'll get into some of the feedback from the Facebook pages, 
hey, I've been doing this for so long, the boundaries have been all over the place, and now I need to enforce them. How do we do that? So, Sarah, I want to ask you the first question or feedback we got from the Facebook page, and and this one person just put guilt. (laughs) How do you manage the feeling of guilt of saying no? Yeah, so that one really is hard, especially when you live in a rural community. And because, I mean, a lot of times, if you're in a bigger setting where you've got multiple vets in the practice, if for some reason you can't get out there, there's always somebody to pass the buck off to. But there do come a lot of times where you get that phone call and it happens quite a bit out here where I can't get anybody else out. And there's sometimes where I I draw the hard line and said, no, this is my family time. I am not going out from this time to this time. I can't do it. But there are some times where you feel really guilty because maybe you decided to go to dinner with your spouse or you said, no, I'm going to take a couple of hours and we're going to go do X activity. And so you find yourself either feeling guilty and having to come up with a lie saying like, oh, I'm really busy because it's hard to tell a client, well, I'm doing personal things and how many clients really accept that response. I mean, it's a, it's a mental battle and it's just having to forgive yourself a little bit and maybe just turning the phone off when that's really hard. Oh, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. (laughs) (laughs) The guilt part. I don't think that ever truly goes away because I think at the end of the day, we're all very compassionate people. We didn't get into this because we had a cold heart, but it's kind of making that decision. Are you going to take care of yourself? Are you going to take care of your family? Where does that set in? Because I think my husband says it best sometimes when he says, well, if I left tomorrow, if I, if I was not here tomorrow, what would happen? Would they find somebody else? You know, what's going to happen? Now think about your family. If you weren't here tomorrow, you know, what would that be? He sets that a little bit in perspective for me, which I, I always really liked that concept to help yourself a little bit with the guilt there. Right. How about your software? So how do you handle the guilt? It's so hard. And it's so hard because we got into this because we want to help animals. And I might not feel that bad for the person on the other end of the phone who had to call five different vets, probably because they maybe owed them all money or don't have a relationship with someone. But man, do I feel bad for the horse. And knowing that in that process of calling five other vets, how long has it already been suffering? And that's the part that really eats away at me. Obviously, if it's a client, I'm going to go and, you know, I'm at the advantage of being in a group practice that I'm not on call 24-7. So if I'm going to schedule dinner with my husband or my family, it's just not on my on-call day. But we do get those non-client emergencies and I'm already at another emergency or I know they're not good pay. And yeah, you have to remember to choose yourself and choose your own energy and I would say we have a system in place where we do charge non-client emergency fees. And the reality is when I tell people that, suddenly they can find another vet, I would say about 90% of the time. So did they call five other vets or are they just manipulating me? And maybe it's a little jaded, but that has started to creep into my head when I get those stories. Right. How about yourself, Julie? Guilt, how do you manage it? I think the guilt is the hardest part about keeping a boundary because when we keep that boundary is when we feel that guilt 
And, you know, like what Marissa said, uh, the, the images going through my mind of, you know, a, a horse suffering, uh, just even profoundly make that guilt even worse. And so the way I manage it is I think about, I can't remember who taught me this. It was a long time ago that if I'd gone on that emergency, what would I be missing out on? Bringing me back to the present. What am I doing right now? Am I hanging out with my family? Am I going on that needed run or bike ride? And how much I enjoy it and, you know, bring myself back to what I'm doing in the present and really immerse myself to be present so that I can let go of uh, the what ifs and what could have been and, and all of that. Because if I'm sinking into that guilt, then I'm not giving what I am doing any mindfulness at all. Yeah, those are, these are great insights. It's almost like, you know, we have the berries, we have the boundaries, but there is a certain degree of leakage and that leakage is guilt a lot yeah. of the times. So Marissa, I know you and I've talked before, you've got a great system of how to turn the phone off. And I think that was one of the bigger discussion points is, you know, we have these phones and all of a sudden we're connected all the time. So how do you turn it off or ignore it? What are your tricks? Well, one I would say is it started a while ago for me. Is I had an Apple Watch. I have an Apple Watch. And that had to come off as soon as I got home from work because I couldn't have that also binging on my wrist while my phone was binging in another room. And so I really do try and physically remove myself from the devices. And the most recent Apple update has actually been amazing. What they have updated their focus or their do not disturb capabilities so that you can pick times that do not disturb turns on automatically on your phone and you can have a set list of people who are allowed through. So for me, that is my family and my friends. And then everyone else gets a notification that I have my do not disturb on or notifications turned off. And I think for me, that is just that nice little reminder to people that it is no longer business hours. I will get back to them during business hours. And obviously, if it's an emergency, then that's something I'm going to respond to. But all of the other little things, it doesn't make a noise at me. It doesn't flush anything at me. And they get a little reminder that now is not the time. Yeah, and I think the uh, drive capability, too, you can actually have a, a message that will pop up. You just, you know, that, hey, I'm out of the office, I'm on vacation or whatever. But you just got to remember to set that. So, Sarah, how about yourself? How do you uh, ignore the phone? So the easiest I've learned, I have very poor self-control when I see anything pop up on the phone, even if I, you know, the phone might flash, even if it's on the personal setting, because something's trying to get through. So if I know that from X amount of time to X amount of time, like that's family time, because they're in all reality in our business, there are very few emergencies that can't wait one to two hours. If I put my phone in away and just put it up, turn it off, put it away, put it somewhere, I am not going to physically touch it for at least two hours, then that gives me enough time to be away, to be part of my family. No other distractions. I joke, it's turning the veterinarian off, <laughs> which is very hard for all of us to do. Uh, but that helps me a lot. And yes, the personal settings on the iPhones, the new settings are fantastic. Um, my only problem is sometimes it's really easy for me to just hit that little person icon on the phone and <laughs> turn that right on off and just say, oh man, what's, what's that little thing I need to check on? So, yeah, it's almost like an addiction, isn't it? It's it I find, like I can scroll Instagram, I can scroll Facebook or I can like scroll my text messages. 
<laughs> you can't stop yourself from checking it sometimes. It's an endorphin rush. It's a real thing. Yeah, I think I need an answer to it, but it's still a rhetorical question. Why do we as equine practitioners allow our owners to have that personal reach of us? You know, the small animal vets don't have that. Our physicians certainly don't have that. Our dentists don't have that, but we do. Uh, so can we retrain our profession to provide more space between us? Do we need to have that space? Can we insert a front desk or an automated something between us and them to help us? I don't know. I don't know the answers. But I think you're right. I know the one thing in our practice of our newer vets, we're telling them like, set the boundaries, don't give numbers, put on a unknown caller type thing and just don't. And it's much yeah. easier to deal with the problem be before you've created it. Yeah. I did that when I was in academic practice and had interns and residents under me. I would flat out tell them, we have a front desk. We have an answering service. Don't you dare give out your cell phone. But they still would. And it's just, yeah. It's our need to please. Yeah, it it's is. Our, it's our greatest virtue and it's our greatest Achilles heel, I think. It is. I agree. That we're wired in that direction, but we need to actively figure this out. I wonder how much of it, though, is just, well, that's the way it's done. And I just think we've just got to break that cycle. Yep. I'll, I'll play devil's advocate on that a little bit. In that, Please. for me, anyways, I can be more efficient if it's a text, it's a picture, it's a quick phone call. That makes my day more efficient if it doesn't necessarily have to go through the office. And I do try and train my clients that there's some things that you don't come to me for. You don't come to me for the schedule. That's the office. You don't come to me for drug refills. That's the office. But when it's something you do actually need my opinion on and it's not an emergency, between business hours, for my efficiency, it just is just easier on my phone. I don't know. Can I push back on that? Because... That is your brain and your profession talking. And we give it away. We give it away so, so much. And that's, that's our expertise. And so if we did funnel those things towards the front desk, could we get scheduled 15-minute phone calls that we charge for? Could we get that front desk triage to whether or not an appointment should be made so you didn't even have to spend the 15, 20 minutes on the phone to establish that. And I'm just pushing back because that's the model that we've all worked on. But is there a different way of doing it that we can actually monetize some of that, potentially efficiency increase our workload because our front desk has that training and capability to do that and, and allows us just to, to work you know, during the day and, and make money because we need to do that too. There is a section of, because I mean, large animal medicine in general, equine, large animal, everything in there are so many of us that have that individual practice, just like we are set up now, that the clinic number is an actual, I my cell phone number. And there are a lot of small single doctors that just work out of the back of a truck that they're set up the same way. And it takes us a long time to be able to afford a secondary phone line. There is no secretary. There's no anybody. We, the, the buck stops with us on all communications. So it does take a long time. I know another vet that I used to work under, she got to the point where in the last couple of years, she got to have somebody and there was this huge relief, second phone line. She got a new number, like hallelujah. <laughs> there is a lot of us that just there, you know, and I'm in that boat right now that we have one phone number. It's my cell phone number. It's all communications to our back clinic. 
So that's where our, our hard line is. And, and my hard rule on that is I will only answer client communications from eight to five, Monday through Friday. That's the business hours. I don't answer questions about prescription refills. I don't answer questions about scheduling anything. I have to stop myself because it's really easy after, you know, you don't realize it's like 535 and you look and somebody popped a, a question through and they're like, can I go on the schedule? And you really want to just pop on there real quick. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Stop. <laughs> don't do it. That can wait till Monday. There's no schedule that needs to happen right now. So I think, uh, Julie, to your point, I think telemedicine has a great role in it, but that's a whole other subject for a whole other podcast. So, cause I think you're hundred percent right You're Yeah. We just give it away. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah, do. Absolutely. And I am always curious about that. Give, 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 because a lot of the time I give and it, it fills me like it's, it's not a burnout. It's not draining. And I, I love helping the animals. I love relating with the clients. I, you know, all of that is so filling for me. But then at some point in time, that's when the boundary gets crossed and everything I give is like red bricks. You know, they're angry, they're disappointed, they're anxious, they're frustrated. And everything we can do to try and keep me on the one side of the boundary or giving is awesome. I, I, I need to do and I need to, need to continue to keep discovering those things so that when I give, it's good instead of making me angry. Shifting a little bit, uh, Sarah, we'll start with you. As a single uh, vet in your practice, it's harder in your stage because I remember it. You want clients and you want to build the practice, but there are times where you need to fire a client. And tell us how you do that. So there have been a few instances, and, and we're a pretty young practice. We're only a couple of years old, but we've already had a few incidents where we've had to fire clients. And a lot of that comes down to a decision of, does the client trust us anymore? You know, are they constantly questioning every little thing we tell them? Are they aggressive on the phone? Are they, you know, usually my hard and fast rule is aggressive language, physical aggression. Obviously we've only had to have one firing incident over that. Uh, but we sit down together, we make a group decision, a group clinic decision. Is this person going to be a further client of ours? If that answer is no, we actually write them a letter. We have kind of a pre-made letterhead of we're having to, you know, dismiss you as a client. These are the reasons why. Here are all your medical records. You know, we hope you find another vet that suits your needs. And that's usually, that's the big thing in the bottom. We hope you find another vet that suits your needs and that you can communicate with better because clearly we do not have a good relationship. We just keep it neutral that way. Yeah, that's good. How about yourself, Marissa? Very similar. So, you know, those instances where just you're not, you're clearly not what they need if you're having those conflicts and maybe they're not following your recommendations or they're not following the medicine you want to practice. And that's that's kind of what Julie talked about too, is, you know, where are you pouring your energy? And if you're pouring your energy into a relationship that no one is benefiting from, then you got to sever that tie. Yes. You know, that letter and terminating the relationship and wishing them the best. I think we're really lucky where we are. There's a lot of there's a lot of vets in this area, a lot of fantastic vets in this area. And so I can't really speak to how hard it must be to set that boundary if you potentially know that they're not going to find another vet. I don't know what that situation is like, but we're fairly lucky that if it's not the right fit for whatever reason or if you feel unsafe going to that farm, 
it's well within your rights and your what you should be doing to set that boundary and say goodbye. Excellent. The moving on. So bad enough, you're at a dinner party and somebody asks you, what do you do? I'm a horse vet. My dog is always scratching. So that that's easy to dismiss. dismiss that's easy. Yeah. That's easier. <laughs> but how do you work for friends? Or have you been in that experience? And, and how do you yes. handle that? Because boy, the boundaries can get blurry. Uh, it really does. And I'm just going through all of the, my horse friends that used to really invade that space. And, and I've started saying from the very get-go, when I get asked my opinion, say, my opinion is worth exactly what you paid for it. Uh, to start off the conversation that it's not worth anything because I haven't seen your horse. And, and usually we can laugh over that because they're good friends. And then slowly but surely over time, because I, I usually follow that up with after they give me their little whatever story, I usually follow that up with, man, I think you really just need to get an appointment with your equine veterinarian. To date, I have managed to navigate not being my really good friend's veterinarian, which I enjoy that. I enjoy not being their vet. But I can imagine, like in Sarah's case, you probably have friends that you are also their veterinarian. And so Lots. so slowly over time, <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Uh, slowly over time, I get less and less and less, other than the true friendships of commiserating with me my horse has, but they've stopped asking me for advice, which is a wonderful place to be. Well, Sarah, you're nodding your head. And so I'm sure you've got <laughs> stories to tell. Oh yeah. It's a really small community. And so, you know, you're going to know that your neighbor is your client, your friends are your clients, you go to church with your clients, you see them everywhere. So you do end up becoming, becoming friends with a lot of the people that you do work with. And, you know, you'll get the occasional little nudge like, Oh, are you going to give me a discount? Cause we're friends. And there is a very hard and fast rule that there is no such thing as a friends and family discount. It just doesn't exist. And we've had to do that because we live in such a small area. If we did that, we wouldn't have a business. Yeah. Uh, we would be breaking even constantly. And as far as like the, the questions, you know, oh, can I, can I stop and ask you a question about this or, or whatnot? I said, hey, why don't you make an appointment? You know, I can, I can scribble you in. I can text you later. I can tell you like, let's get you an appointment. We try to just constantly divert off and you'll still get it. We'll get stopped going through the grocery store and ask like, hey, I did get the dog itching question recently <laughs> because we do work on a little bit of everything. And I'm like, you know, I know I'm not your small animal vet. I would really trust their opinion. I can't tell you anything without an exam. And I try to make that hard stop with I can't tell you anything without an exam and, and just leave it at that. How about your sophomores? Any thoughts on this? You know what? I, I had some thoughts while I was listening to you, Sarah, and I think it goes back a little bit to what are boundaries and how do you set them? And that very first question we asked was I heard someone on a podcast recently who put it as there's boundary setting and identifying your boundaries. And then there's actually boundary building, which is the day-to-day grind of actually doing it and actually saying those words out loud to people, saying no, saying you need an exam telling yourself, no, don't answer that phone. So in the, you know, with friends, whether they start as friends who then want to be a client or their clients who become friends, it's that day-to-day grind of boundary building and you get to change your boundaries. We all have permission to change our boundaries 
and set new boundaries. And for me, the hardest part is saying them out loud, for sure. I, I know in my head where I want my boundary to be, but to say out loud, I don't think I should be your vet because I'm afraid you're going to call me at night about things that I don't want to answer at night. You know, you're worried you're going to be that bad guy or maybe they won't like you or I don't know. But I think it is it is maybe a little bit easier to set the boundary with a friend before you become their veterinarian and say, if you want to enter this relationship with me, we're going to have to be really clear about when we are just chatting as friends and when we are veterinarian and client, because this is my life that I have to respect where my energy goes. And it is, it's a little bit harder when your clients then become your friends and halfway through the relationship, you have to say like, Hey, you're kind of crossing some boundaries for me here. But if they're truly your friends, then hopefully they can handle that and understand that. True friends would. And that's exactly what I was thinking of because you do learn over time. Your real true friends are not going to continuously push that button. You will learn over time which ones are actually friends and which ones are just your, your vet friends. And the next question is another one from an AEP member that was on the Facebook. And uh, Julie, I'll ask you this one. is like, how do you respond to being pressured by an owner or a trainer to do something you're not comfortable doing, whether it's due to danger, ethics, experience, what have you? Yeah. So I think that that takes also a lot of mental fortitude because again, we're pleasers, right? Uh, and it's hard. It's, it's already hard enough for us to say no for the general practice part. But then when an owner is right in front of us, pushing, 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 pushing. I, mean, I remember some stories from um, not only my life, but the one that struck me the most was somebody didn't want to do a castration in a dangerous barn environment and the owner bullied her into it. And she did it. And then when the horse recovered, it broke her ankle. Why do we do that to ourselves? And so I think that we need to remember that when an owner is pressuring us, we need to be confident in our no uh, and stand behind our no and keep saying it over and over for each time the, the owner is pushing us to do something in any of those instances, something dangerous that we are uncomfortable with. Gosh, if we don't know something, you know, there's ways we can speak confidently in that not knowing, but that we will learn and, and come back or find out or, or other ways of helping. But then, yeah, just, just becoming confident in the space of saying no. And that's really hard. It's really, really hard. How do you handle that, Marissa? I, I totally agree with Julie. And you have to hold your, you know, hold your boundary, be confident in what you believe and what you say. And I also think you have to do a little bit of fact checking with yourself. What story am I telling myself is going to be the outcome of me holding this boundary? Am I going to get fired? Is this person not going to use me as their vet anymore? Is something bad going to happen for the horse? Is something bad going to happen for me? And you can't let fear of those potential outcomes make your boundary sway. Because a lot of the times that's just your fear or just your ego that's telling you something bad's going to happen unless you give in to this. And a lot of the times that's just not true. Sarah, I'm interested in your perspective on this being a, you know, a solo vet in a small community. And like Marissa said, there's a lot of other vets in our area that, you know, hey, you want to be the hero, dive into that pen, go for it. So how do you handle that? So I have been, you know, when I was first got out in vet medicine, I was in a really small mixed animal practice. We had a lot of doctors, but we were kind of the only vet in the area. 
And I did get pressured into a lot of fairly dangerous situations because the other vets in the, in the practice would do it as well, because you kind of have that, you know, the, the cow vet syndrome where it's, you know, the cowboy go in there and get it done. And I did get hurt quite a few times, you know, I broke bones, uh, cuts every, you know, everything you can imagine got trampled a few times and it took one really bad experience for me to learn to really set the hard and fast rule of, cause it, it put me out of large animal medicine for about a year. And I kind of said, when I was going back into it, I said, I have got to set some really hard rules and safety. And I still find myself every now and then, cause we do work on cows teetering that line in some situations. I'm actually a little bit guilty of it. I've got an appointment tomorrow. I was the third vet somebody had called about a feral horse that had barbed wire wrapped around its ankle and nobody else would touch it because it is not halter broke. And I said, I will go out there and I will go look at it. And I implored over, over and over and over again that I cannot guarantee I will be able to work on your horse. I might just have to tell you there's nothing I can do unless you get this thing into a trailer and into a, a shoot situation. But I said I would go out there and look at it. And so I am really guilty of some of that. We do not want to hear in a day or two that something happened. So, <laughs> you know, the hardest lessons are the ones, like as you said, the ones where you significantly get hurt. So like you never want to, you're going to get hurt in this job, and but there's a way of mitigating risk for sure. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt at any veterinary job. I mean, sometimes I'd rather be kicked by a horse than get a cat fight. Yes. <laughs> And something I try to tell my clients, and a few of them will get upset with us for saying this, but I said, look, our job is inherently dangerous. We don't have to add stupidity to the mix. Yeah, that's a good line. Yeah, That's brilliant. So that's a segue to one of the last questions I have here. And that is, you know, this is probably the younger vets uh, might be more interested in this. But, but what do you do if the place where you work, your boss doesn't really respect or encourage boundaries? I think one of you said earlier that you're like, oh, I've got to do it because, you know, if I don't, I might might get fired or my boss will be upset. But uh, I think there is a shift in what uh, we're doing and I think we're getting wiser, but there are still some veterinarians that have that. All right, I'll go for it. So Marissa, what do you think about that? How do you handle that? Well, you know what? I think young veterinarians are in a really unique situation right now in that they're in really high demand uh, in North America. So Again, look at the story you're telling yourself and are you going to get fired? Probably not. Um, You're probably very needed in that practice. And hopefully you're in a position where even if boundaries haven't been previously established or respected or even thought about, hopefully you're in a position where you can have a frank conversation that you, you love this profession, you want to stay in this profession. And this is how you need things to be set up so that you can do that. And whether that's your personal boundaries and your personal time or your safety boundaries or whatever it may be, you know, hopefully you can at least have that conversation and start working towards that, whether even if that's a big culture shift for the practice. And if it's not, there's probably somewhere where it is. Yeah. Julie, I'd be curious to hear uh, your perspective on this from working in an academic institution, which are larger and sometimes can be set in their ways one way or the other. Really good question for the academic side, because uh, I think set in your ways is a perfect set of words for that. But again, I think it's the same thing that Marissa said, that you're not going to get fired by having difficult and hard conversations in this space. And probably uh, you're not the only one feeling 
those lack of boundaries uh, or the invasion of your boundaries. And so it'd be awesome, and I've not seen it, but it would be awesome to sit down at a section level or a department level and figure out uh, because there are new and different ways of doing things that you can still get the focus of the students and the focus of the clinic done, uh, but it doesn't have to be the same pattern that it's been the past you know, 20 years or whatever it happens to look like. And so again, it's being willing to enter into those conversations. On the same side as private practice right now, though, it's really, really hard to find equine veterinarians, uh, specialists to be in academia. And so if you're a hot commodity in that space too, and so moving is something that you're willing to do and you can't shift an environment to be healthier uh, where you are, you can probably, again, find that environment somewhere else. I I hate that uh, for large animal practitioners, that sometimes that involves a move, unlike our small animal counterparts, but giving away your professional life in in a place that can't, uh, you can't thrive in just sounds miserable too. I got to think it should be, it should be part of the interview. And so when you're interviewing for a job, you need to be asking this because if they're like, no, we don't do that, then kind of like Marissa said, there's a lot of demand. So you just, all right, that tells you a lot right there. Can I interrupt you? Because I'm curious. Yes, please. What are the right questions to ask though? That's the hard part. When you're interviewing, how can you make sure that the adaptability of an environment is there? I think the simple ones are like, do you expect the veterinarians to be answering phone calls after hours? What is your position on people asking you to do stuff like that? As we said earlier, that may be dangerous or unethical or what have you. Mm-hmm. And I think you hopefully get a, a chance to talk with some of the other vets in the practice and ask them how they feel about their boundaries. Yes. Yeah, so it would require the individual interviewing to really be able to nail down those areas that they need good boundaries before they could go into their interview. Yeah, absolutely. Last question. And I think this is the quintessential question. And, and Sarah, we'll start to you. This is like every equine vet. While you're here, doc, can you, and you have got a full day ahead of you. Sometimes you <laughs> you have a slow day, but you don't want to encourage bad behavior. But often it's, I mean, I've lost the client by saying I can't, well, I'll get somebody else that will do it. But how do you handle that, Sarah, especially a small town vet? I mean, you, again, it's, you see these people every day. Yeah. So usually what I do is if we're there for something because of the scope of our practice and we do a lot of podiatry things, you might have somebody say something like, um, oh, while you're here, can you guys throw a quick front set on that horse over there? And I'm like, what? Do you know how long that takes us to evaluate a new horse, put this on? But we don't say those things. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll look at the schedule. I'm like, hold on, let me look at the schedule real quick. Let me see if there's some wiggle room, you know, air quotes there and look at there and go, man, no, I can't really get you. Let me find you another appointment. Or, you know, can you do a quick dental or can you look at this real quick? You know, um, oh, can you do a quick this? There are some things that I'll say like, yeah, I can do that real quick. Or there are other things that I say, no, we need to make another appointment time for that. And I'm so far knock on wood. I haven't had a lot of clients when you say it, you say it nicely, you offer them the next appointment time pretty quickly. You know, you don't say, no, I can't get to that today. I don't know when I can get to you. It's going to be weeks, blah, 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 blah. You say, let me find you another appointment time. And you try to help them out pretty, you know, acknowledge what they're asking kind of thing. You don't run into as much backlash, you know, obviously not going one night yet. Those are good tips. How about yourself, Marissa? How do you handle that? 
you know, and it's an interesting question because like you said, sometimes, sometimes you do have time, especially if you're trying to build a practice, build a clientele. And I don't necessarily think it's bad training or bad boundary setting. If you do say yes on those days, I think you just have to be really open in your communication that this is an exception. This is not to be expected. I do happen to have space today. Let's do that. In the moments where I don't have time, really what Sarah said of try and find them another time so they know they're not just hanging in the wind, but also saying, I really want to give you my time and my focus and I can't do that for you today. And this is, you know, I want to take this seriously and I want this to be important. And I'm thinking of a recent time where I did have to say, no, I don't have time for this today. Let's find you another time. There's a little bit of pushback. And I internally wavered because the reason I didn't have time to do that today was because I wanted to get home before my daughter's bedtime. And there's a part of my brain that says that's not important enough to put this off. But the reality is the lingering month-long subtle lameness, that's not important enough to put off my daughter. So that was a little bit of an internal fight. But no, you have to you have to at least just tell people from the beginning, if you're going to do it the, the, while you're here, that that's not going to happen every time. And if it's a true emergency, then something else has to give, which is probably the thing you were originally there for. Julie, last words. What are you, how do you handle those, those while you're here questions? I think the while you're here questions uh, is an example of one of those boundaries that isn't fixed that we need to be flexible on the response there. And I think both Marissa and Sarah hit it accurately with the advice of being explicitly clear that looking at the schedule and saying, oh, you know, I've had a cancellation or it's a relatively slow day, so I can do that. But making sure that they understand that it's not something that will happen just routinely. And then being very clear with the recommendation to them that I can't fit that in. This That patient needs a really good physical exam and really time that I don't have today. So we need to get you rescheduled. I think clarity and good communication uh, and then being really self-aware of what you can uh, do willingly uh, on a given day when that happens. I think those are all really important. I think those are great final words to wrap this up. I think uh, you, all three of you have just sort of nailed it and summarized it quite well. I'd like to thank you all very much for taking the time. We're all busy. And I think with this information, I think is going to be very valuable to a lot of members. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org. Beringer Ingelheim knows that every veterinary professional in practice has a wide variety of needs. That's why our equine veterinary technical solutions team, our VETS team, is here to provide education, product, and veterinary expertise, exceptional customer care, and regulatory stewardships. Our mission is to lead our veterinary community in technical knowledge and build a long-lasting relationship with our customers. To get in contact with one of our team members, please call us at 888-637-4251.